Wasn't it the psalmist who in Psalm 119 verse 105 said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And this evening already, many of the words of the songs have extolled in our minds some powerful thoughts, some impressions of that reward to which each of us look forward. And interestingly enough, as part of our lesson, of course, as I hinted at in the Bible class this morning, we'll cast a spotlight tonight on a building of God. You may know just a moment ago, as Eddie read for us from the opening verse of the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul on that occasion, as he addressed the Corinthian brethren, commented about a building of God. Commented about that building of God, that house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And as we ponder and contemplate, think about the nature of that building. I would ask us to give it some thought this evening. And to do so under the title of this lesson that I have shown the course on the slide to my left. This next slide brings us to appreciate that it's certainly no great stretch of the consideration that throughout the ages men have pondered and wondered. Curiosity has been aroused in tremendous ways to give thought to what happens, not only after death, but quite frankly on that occasion of a resurrection in some, at some future instant. When you and I give thought to the nature of that resurrection, it conjures in our mind almost immediately that famous question that the ancient patriarch Job asked. In Job 14, verse 14, phrase like this, If a man die, shall he live again? That was a great question by Job, wasn't it? Thankfully, throughout the concourse of the Word of God, not only is the affirmative answer provided, indeed a man shall live again, but tonight we'll see if we can appreciate more interestingly the features of that body that he will have on that occasion. Surely, as we come to the bottom of that slide, the thought is so easily appreciated that the Holy Word of God has so much to say. And even tonight in the time that we have, we'll not be able to look at all the verses, but I trust that the ones we do consider will set before us a powerful, a tremendous appreciation that will lead us to not only anticipate, but to look forward with a great yearning, the marvelous matter of that glorious resurrection. Let's begin our lesson then by looking at the following set of ideas solidifying in our mind that which we no doubt have already sung about many times today, really, but the certainty of the resurrection. It is so true, isn't it, and how often do announcements that are made from this very location and information that you and I have so readily at our disposal, someone passes away, someone's life in the flesh has reached its end. It does seem, doesn't it, that ultimately the cessation of life in the flesh brings us to realize it looks as though death is the final winner. It looks as though that death is the final triumphant victor. That is the way it looks, isn't it? In fact, few and far between have been those individuals that have ever lived on this earth that did not see death. In fact, we can number them on less than one hand, can't we? Might we say, in light of all those things... 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 26 highlight the fact that the last enemy, the very last enemy to ultimately be defeated is death. You and I know that this side, of course, of eternity, we realize that there is still the overwhelming reality of it. In fact, on average, worldwide, there are two deaths every second. Two human beings die every second worldwide. 
You can well tally up by the time we close this service tonight, the 6.30 hour if you please. Think of how many individuals will die somewhere in the world tonight. And yet as we think about what appears to be the victorious and triumphant character of death, no wonder the next appreciations are so powerful and so very interesting. For you see, death is not the final victor. We understand so easily from the lips of our Lord and so many other biblical writers and inspired spokesmen, there will be a resurrection. Those famous words of Jesus in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, in the midst of that conversation with those that were Jewish in character, Jesus very straightforwardly said to them, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Although there are two possible varieties, you might see, of resurrection, he nonetheless affirmed all shall come forth in exactly the same hour. It's not as if there's going to be seven years separating them. It's not as if there will be a lengthier period of time. There will be a resurrection in which all the good and the bad will participate at the same time. With regard to the thoughts of that, it takes us to that overwhelming scene in the 11th chapter of the gospel according to John. On that occasion, you and I may recall the dear friend of Jesus had passed, his name Lazarus. As Lazarus had passed away, his two sisters were left as grieving sisters behind. As the Lord, several days later, some four days in total, ultimately made his way to what would be the place where they had placed the body of Lazarus. You and I remember that there was a conversation that ensued between Martha, the very sister of Lazarus, and none other than the Son of God Himself. Martha began by saying, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Martha had a tremendous amount of faith, recognizing the fact if Jesus had been there, He had the power to prevent that which was the death of Lazarus. However, the Lord wasn't there at that particular moment. And then as, as, as that conversation proceeded, we noticed that Martha's confidence was nonetheless so greatly strong. Wasn't it she who said, Even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. John 11 verses 21 and following. Jesus made a tremendous statement following that when He said, Thy brother shall rise again. Now that's as powerful and as direct as one can imagine. He told her, make no mistake about it, Lazarus is going to rise again. That which appears so certain and yet so very unable to be defeated will in fact give sway to what is a resurrection. As you look next on that slide, wasn't it Paul who addressed these same sentiments and did so very directly to the Corinthian congregation? As we study, continue, continuing onward in our Wednesday evening studies, we are now in the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And when we arrive at chapter 15, we will of course be reminded that is the resurrection chapter of the Bible. Some have labeled it that, but Paul uses 58 verses by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to discuss the resurrection. He sets forth the answers to a number of pertinent questions and he tantalizes us and challenges us. And we shall revisit that chapter later in the lesson this evening. For now, you might notice in verses 1 and following, Paul set the stage for that which follows in the chapter by affirming that that same Lord Jesus Christ, the very heart and core of the gospel, 
He says, I preached him unto you, but he died. And he was buried, verse 3. But he did rise again. And that marvelous matter of that resurrection is what provides you and me with the tremendous hope of our own resurrection. No wonder in light of those things, Jesus rose again. You and I cannot place too much emphasis on that fact. I know that there are those who claim that that's just a myth. And there are those who claim there's not sufficient evidence to warrant an absolute confidence in that resurrection. But those individuals are mistaken. In terms of the facts of history, few and far between are those that are warranted more solidly in belief than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul offers the following evidence. Notice, beginning in verse number 5, He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Isn't it still the case that among matters of which there's testimony, if there are eyewitnesses, that makes an almost ironclad case. Paul didn't list just one eyewitness. He himself would have been a tremendous example, and so too would James. But think about the large number here he's listed. And did you notice with me? Paul says some of them are still alive. If those in Corinth had the slightest doubt, all they had the goons go ask those people. Did Jesus really rise? Did you see Him? Did you hear Him? Did you watch Him eat something? They could have said, yes, we saw Him. What tremendous evidence. The reality of a resurrection. When you and I think more about that, Paul begins from that point onward, and he highlights in the mind of the Corinthians what great evidence and what tremendous truth there is based on that resurrection. Note with me the logic that follows. I'll begin reading in verse number 11. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believed. Now if Christ be preached that He rose again from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some individuals in Corinth who despite the evidence were making the claim there is no resurrection. There were some who were having enough influence that Paul addressed that matter. And then verse 13 says it like this. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not raised? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Paul reaches two quick conclusions. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then that means Jesus could not have been raised. Not only that, he quickly concludes in verse number 14. If Christ is not raised, we, that is the apostles, are liars. Because we have preached that He was raised. That would mean that they could not have had any confidence in the apostles, including Paul. Verse 15 goes on to say, Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And then finally, verse 17, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. At this point, he says, not only are all these other things to be recognized as true, if Christ didn't raise, 
you have to still be in your sins. Because your freedom from sin, the whole platform of that gospel plan of salvation hinges on. The same way we rise from the watery grave of baptism, that's predicated on the fact Christ was raised from the dead. So if He wasn't raised, there is no power in baptism. There's no power in the gospel plan of salvation. We're still in our sins and we're doomed to hell. How critical is the resurrection of our Lord? No wonder in verse 18 it says, Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. That of course means what hope have we of any life beyond the grave? And what hope can we hold out for our departed loved ones in Christ? There's no reason to hold out any if, the, if there is no resurrection. No wonder as we come near the bottom of that slide, Paul uses these thoughts and very powerfully states in verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Paul says He was raised. And not only that, He's the guarantee that all of us will be as well. He is the first fruits. Paul uses an Old Testament idea to assist us, doesn't he? In the same way that God commanded the Israelites to make an initial first fruits offering unto God at the very outset of the harvest season, that was an offering to God predicated on God's continued gift to them and the greater harvest that was to follow. Same here. Christ was the first to ultimately be finally resurrected in that glorious and beautiful way. And yet He's the first fruits of all of us, and yea, all of the human family as well. Surely we can appreciate, as we close that slide, isn't it sweet to think about? There were some individuals in the Bible who were raised back to life, like Lazarus. The Lord did raise him back to life, but Lazarus died again at some point. You and I look for a day, a moment, and a time in which we shall rise to life never ever to die again. That's everlasting life. That's eternal life. A life, of course, of which much is spoken in the New Testament. I suppose in light, though, of the reality of that resurrection, it immediately brings us to ask about a few more details, a few more specifics, if you will, as it relates to what transpires following that resurrection. I've entitled this slide, The Resurrected Body. What about the nature of that body that you and I shall have in the resurrection? Does the Bible tell us much, if anything, about it? Does it allow us to draw any conclusions about the nature, the basic specifics of that body? I would ask you to develop some of these thoughts with me. We are by no means the first to have ever asked that question. Look at verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15 and look at the questions that were being asked of Paul in that ancient day. But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Just as surely as Paul had highlighted the nature of the resurrection, he already perceived the fact there were going to be some in Corinth who'd say, But now let's face it, Paul, how are the dead raised up? And not only that, what kind of a body will I have in the resurrection? What kind of body will the God of heaven make available? You might take note that beginning at that point in that chapter, verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses from that point basically to the end of the chapter, answering those questions and others much like them. As we develop some of those thoughts, 
may we be first to affirm the thought of a resurrection coming to life again, a raising to life in the reality of the resurrection. That can only happen with the power of the God of heaven. Man does not have the power to bring a resurrection. No human has the power to bring to life those who literally have passed from it. As you think about that resurrection, look at some of these verses. In Romans 1 verse 4, as we read about Christ's resurrection, where did the power come from that made that possible? Paul was very clear. He said, by the power of God, He was raised up from the dead. And in this very chapter, notice verses 38 and 57, where again the matter of the resurrection and the power behind it is described. Verse 38 reads it like this. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased Him unto every seed His own body. Question, who is it that makes available that resurrected body? It's God. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Surely we can easily conclude that the thought of what transpires on that glorious resurrection morning the power of the raising from the dead as the Hadean realm is emptied and that marvelous resurrection takes place. The power of God will easily be seen then. With that power of God available, it is now interesting to observe this resurrected body. Let's notice what Paul has to say about it in the very chapter before us, 1 Corinthians 15. I would draw your attention especially at this point to verse 42. Verse 42 says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. You and I are aware that the word it is a pronoun. What is the antecedent of it? To what does that word it refer? If you and I can understand that to which Paul refers, it will open our eyes rather interestingly about the details of that resurrection. The word it refers to the body that is buried. When an individual passes away and that spirit has, of course, gone to reside in that Hadean realm, that's described for us in James 2, verse 26. But what it remains behind is the body. The spirit is gone. The body is now recognized as dead. As Paul describes the burial of that body, or his final interment, if you please, he says, it is sown in corruption. You and I know well, we've often visited a cemetery. We've been called on to make our way to that location wherein the body of a dear departed one is now placed, back into the dust of which, of course, it originally was made. Do you notice, though, the prestige of a verse like this one? Notice again, it is sown in corruption, but notice the same it is raised in incorruption. There will come a time when that body will come forth. Although there may have been centuries and even millennia to pass, that body will come forth. Notice, it is a significant thing that the very same thing that is sown, that is to say buried and planted, is the very same thing that will come forth. You and I can learn something then about the body. Now notice, we aren't affirming that the risen one will be physical like the one that was buried. For we'll have to develop that point next. In fact, doesn't Paul highlight that thought as well? Look at verse 37, please. And that which thou sowest, 
that is a body which is buried, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain, but God giveth it a body, as it hath pleased him unto every seed his own body. Paul uses an analogy to help us understand, doesn't he? We know that when the garden time comes, we'll plant a corn seed, but yet the sprout that comes forth doesn't look much like the seed that was planted. It has a different body, a different appearance. Paul says much like that will be descriptive of our resurrection. This physical body is what's placed in the ground. But what comes forth, though it is the same, it doesn't have the same nature. It's not the same character. God will give it a body as He sees fit. That body to which Paul refers, you may notice it's described in this beautiful way. I'd call your attention to verse 40. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. Paul helps us again appreciate as we peer into the heavens on a clear night. And we notice the stars differ in the sense some are brighter than others, some appear larger than others. Paul uses that to appreciate so too that body that was planted. It had one glory, call it a terrestrial one. But when it comes forth in that glorious morning of resurrection, it'll have a celestial glory, a different kind of glory. No wonder as we proceed to develop that thought more thoroughly, that takes us right to verses 42 and following. There are three descriptions that Paul quickly uses. It is sown in corruption. When you and I reach that point of appreciating the reality of death, You'll notice Paul uses the word corruption. That word literally means ruin or decay. It has behind it the thought of destruction. You know this old body just finally wears out, doesn't it? If we live here long enough, it just finally reaches the point that it's done all that it can do, at least in the flesh as it now exists. Maybe the heart wears out. Maybe the lungs wear out. Maybe the nervous system, the brain... Maybe a number of the features. It does in some way remind us of the attribute of the decay over the years, characteristic of the human flesh. But you will note with me, although it's true it may be sown in corruption, what about how it's raised? In that morning of resurrection, you notice Paul quickly affirms in verse 42, it is raised in incorruption. No decay to that body. Whatever kind of body comes forth on that marvelous occasion, it does not reek of any sense of destruction or ruin or decay. It will not wear out. It will not give way with the passing of time. That body, you see, will be fit for all of eternity, which is now before it. Not only that, in the next verse, in verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. That body, again, that is this physical one that you and I now inhabit, he says it'll be planted or sown in dishonor. That thought of dishonor brings us to appreciate both shame and disgrace. Now by that, Paul wasn't asserting that individuals may, in fact, simply reach death because they've acted shamefully. We all know the finest Christians that have ever lived still die. 
And we all are recognizing the fact, of course, of Hebrews 9, 27, as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. When Paul uses this word dishonor, he simply brings to bear the fact that it appears death has associated with it an ending, a cessation. It is that which so often brings about a sense of leaving or a dishonorable state. There are many cultures around the world that think about things after death and they kind of pose it in a very dishonorable or sometimes even shameful fashion. Be that as it may, notice how quickly Paul says this, that body that will come forth, that resurrected body, it will be raised. And in verse 43, in glory. That word glory means grandeur or splendor. And what a tremendous consideration to keep in mind. At this point, having looked at those two, Paul yet has more to come. Notice verse number 43. It is sown in weakness. We also recognize that the human family so often, it seems, has that strong desire to find the, quote, fountain of youth, to somehow keep death at bay, that grim reaper that's so often described, to find a way by way of medicine or exercise or other kind of telepathic matters to keep death away from us. You'll notice here, no one yet has been able to succeed. Death is the lot of our life in this flesh, isn't it? And it may be that that body is sown in weakness. Disease finally won. The considerations of wearing out over time ultimately were victorious. And so it might easily be able to be said, sure enough, sown in weakness. But notice what quickly follows. Raised in power. That final planting in the heart of earth was not the end, for in fact there will be a powerful and beautiful resurrection. Didn't Jesus again say, all that are in the grave shall come forth? Surely in light of those things, Paul has one final observation. Verse number 44. It is sown a natural body. To summarize some of what we've seen, this body that you and I now have, flesh and blood and bones, it's here described as a body that's natural. It is fit for this life in the flesh on earth. However, it's not fit for that life that's not necessary for a natural consideration. For verse 44 now says, It is raised a spiritual body. So this body that's planted or buried in earth, sown as Paul describes it here, there will come a time when it will come forth not a natural body. It'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye, if you will, and it'll come forth a spiritual body. That spiritual body... You and I now notice that Paul continues to describe. Verse number 48 puts it like this. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are also they that are heavenly. You and I can see then that right now we are earthy. We live on earth. We are fit for this place where we now dwell in the flesh. But just so, God will fit us with a body suited for that dwelling place beyond, and it shall not be earthy. It will, of course, be spiritual. It will be fit thus with a body described in verse 48 that's heavenly. Surely, in light of those things, we now notice quickly verse 49. And, and as we have borne the image of the earthy, 
we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. I believe we're beginning to anticipate, aren't we? This body that you and I are going to have, it'll be an incorruptible one. It'll be one that's not earthy. It'll be celestial compared to what we now have as terrestrial. It surely will be a remarkable thing to consider. As we develop that point, closing that slide, might we say, there is an additional point that seems very helpful, certainly to us. You'll notice in verse number 51, I'm sorry, verse 50, Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed." For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You noticed with me, he says that on that morning of resurrection, the incorruptible will, of course, have been put on. Corruption will have given way to incorruption. Perhaps you and I can ask in light of this about Jesus, our blessed Savior. For it is amazing that you and I remember more than once he himself said that he will, of course, return, not to this earth, but when He does, He will be the supervisory force over the fullness of that resurrection. When Jesus returns, you and I learn that these vile bodies that of course have been sown and planted, they themselves will be fashioned like Christ's risen body. We learn that from the wording of Philippians 3.21 as well as 1 John chapter 3 verses 2-4. through 4. It is on those occasions that we read so interestingly that we shall be like Him. You and I, with that resurrected spiritual body, that body that's heavenly in character, we will be like the Christ. Not to say we'll have the power He does, of course, but our body in that form will be like His resurrected body. If you and I could then ask the question, what was His body like? Maybe that could assist us to think more clearly about what kind of body you and I may have. First of all, might we conclude with some of the thoughts on this final slide. Christ's resurrected body. First thing that many, I suppose, through the years have asked, will we recognize one another in the realm beyond this one? In that morning of resurrection, will you know, blessed brothers and sisters, whom you've treasured on this earth? There is every impression in Scripture that the answer is yes. For after all, the Lord's resurrected body, the disciples recognized Him immediately. In fact, even from a distance on the shore, Peter knew exactly who He was. Will we recognize one another in heaven? Yes. Whatever the form of that spiritual body has, apparently it will bear a resemblance to the form of this fleshly one. And we will be able to recognize with marvelous power and tremendous comfort the nature of departed 
Christians that we've appreciated, loved, and known, the thought of that idea leads me to notice the resurrected Lord. I mentioned Peter. Did the other disciples recognize him? Did Thomas recognize him? We know he did. In fact, on that first occasion when the Master himself appeared to the apostles, Thomas was absent. It doesn't pay to be absent much, does it? But Thomas was absent. And yet, on the very next Lord's Day, Thomas was present with them. And this time, the Lord reappeared. And this time, he knew exactly who the Lord was. As we read about that scene in John chapter 20, we'll first learn about recognizability next. It's easy to appreciate that body of the resurrected Jesus was visible. Sometimes when we think about spirits, we think about invisible things or silhouettes or ghosts. And maybe many fiction writers and other writers have encouraged us to think along those lines. But apparently the body to which the book of 1 Corinthians refers and the kind of body to which we've seen otherwise in our lesson tonight is a body that was a visible thing. It's not just some apparition that is simply a matter of energy in some sense. It really was a body, spiritual indeed, but a body nonetheless. Not only the visible character of that body, you may remember that risen body of Jesus. It was able to be touched. In fact, he told Thomas, put thy hand into my side. Because Thomas had said, unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Jesus told Thomas, Thomas, here I am. That body apparently could be touched. It apparently was again something through which one could appreciate an entity that was not just a pure matter of energy or force, if you please. Not only that, you and I might notice that the Lord's body wasn't bound by these physical things of physics and chemistry on this earth. I say that because of the scene that unfolded in John chapter 20. Wasn't it true there when Jesus met with the apostles after He had already been resurrected, but yet He appeared to them and met with them. But the Scriptures are very clear. They were meeting in a place where the door was shut, and yet somehow the Lord appeared. He passed through the ceiling or He passed through the wall. He in some way appeared to them. And that resurrected body had all the power of that capability. Will you and I then, released from the realms of this flesh inhabiting that spiritual body that God has prepared for us, we won't be shackled apparently by the laws of physics as we now know them either. That should be a great and exciting thing, it would seem to me. When you and I give thought to that, isn't it fair to say? Paul's words as he closes chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians still read like this. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? When you and I stand at the grave then of a departed Christian, we have every reason to in some ways rejoice because we recognize all the rewards and promises of the resurrection and the life await that individual, await that spirit on that morning of its resurrection. But surely in light of those things, we now recognize that that resurrected body does remind us of this too. What about the resurrection morning for those that are not prepared? For those that have died lost? For those who never obeyed the gospel? Or for those who had but chose to wander away from it? 
You'll notice Jesus did speak, didn't He, about a resurrection unto damnation. John 5, 29. They too will be resurrected. They will be fit with a body that will never decay or wear out. But it will be a body that hell will never consume. But it will feel the awful fires of brimstone forevermore. Never annihilated. Never ceased to be. Never a moment of the pain to be reduced or, or ceased. You see, they will be fit for that kind of body too. That kind of a resurrection is a frightening thing. In fact, it should send chills up our spine to think about a resurrection like that one. Can you imagine rising on that sweet morning only to hear Him say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And yet, there are so many that day that will hear it. Matthew 7, verse 23. Tonight, we have opportunity as we've thought about this resurrected body. It will be glorious. For those that are prepared for heaven, it will be a celestial thing. It will truly be a magnificent resurrected body. I trust that we each are striving to live in a way that that will be descriptive of our resurrection. Paul sought for it. He longed for it. And so too, no doubt, you and I do too. If tonight we could be of help to anybody in your obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came that you and I might enjoy the kind of resurrection of which we've spoken this evening. And Paul encouraged the Corinthians to so live that they might be the recipients of it too. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the only begotten Son of God and be baptized. If you've never attended to that, you need to do so tonight. As we close this slide, there isn't too much to say except this. We long for that morning of resurrection in which that resurrected body will be fit for eternity because God will see to it. May we each strive then to be resurrected into life. And if tonight we could help you rededicate your life to the cause of Jesus, we'd be happy and so excited to see us. Brother Adam has chosen this song of invitation. If right now you hear the Lord beckoning and you hear Him pleading with you, don't close the door on Him. In fact, swing it wide open. For He, in fact, swung the whole doors of heaven open for you. He wants you to enter through those doors. He wants you to have that resurrected body of which we've spoken with such glory tonight. If all isn't well, why not make it so? Come now, if you would, while we stand and sing. <laughs>